Oh my goodness, you crazy son of a bitch. Do you have any idea what you've just done? You've just discovered the Marts and Lestrap Show Podcast Hour. This is the show that may or may not be an hour long based on your perception of time and how much I've got to say. So strap yourselves in and prepare your ears for the journey of a lifetime with your host of the Martin Lestrap Show Podcast Hour, me, you idiot. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Uh, in just a few minutes, I'm going to play part two of my conversation with my dear friend and memoirist and author, S.K. Murphy. In part one of our conversation, we spoke about Oprah's book club versus the Pulitzer Prize and which club we'd rather belong to. And we also spent time talking about her memoirs, Tainted Legacy, and Lessons I Learned from the Dogs Who Saved Me. In part two of our conversation, Kay and I will talk about her her first novel, Ghost Grandma. It's a young adult novel, and she published it uh, just a few months ago. After Kay and I finished talking about her novel, Ghost Grandma, we talked more about writing in general. We share some of our philosophies about writing and storytelling and themes. We also talk about reviews and what it's like as a writer to cope with reviews. But in particular, we talk about receiving negative reviews and and how we deal with it. Now, I've mentioned before on this podcast that Kay is the teacher who changed my life forever. She's the one who put me on the path to becoming a writer. And uh, I, I've told you, uh, in, in my own words in, in episode one, about Kay and how she affected me. So in part two of our conversation, you'll get to hear from Kay's point of view and what it was that she saw in me, that, that she believed that I could be a writer. And if you haven't done so already, check out the shop page on martinlestrapshow.com. And while you're down there, you'll see uh, links to all of Kay's books, Tainted Legacy, as well as Lessons I Learned from the Dogs Who Saved Me, and Ghost Grandma. Buy all three of them if you don't already have them. And before you do, just be sure to, to either click the Amazon banner on the shop page or just click the icons to her book covers and it'll take you right there. And I think that's enough of an introduction, so let's get on with the rest of my conversation with S.K. Murphy. My daughter did tell me he read the book and I said, did your dad look relieved when he said he read the book? Because I suspect he's relieved because I left off, I left out a lot of things that he did that were really, really bad things. Um, and she said, yeah, come to think of it. How did you know, mom? He did kind of look relieved when he said he read it. Mm-hmm. Because he read it not because he wanted to read my book, but because he wanted to see if I said anything. But it wasn't to save him. It was... Um, I knew my children would read the book, yeah, and I didn't want to vilify their dad, yeah, and so I left a lot of stuff out, and so I did. I think that's fair too, honestly. Yeah, that's I not did a bad choice. censor censor myself for that, but it it wouldn't have added to the narrative, mm-hmm. which was just supposed to be about me and the dogs. So I right. tried to really focus on me and the dogs. Yeah, yeah, and as a, as sort of you know maybe not even censorship, but maybe sort of a, an editorial choice. I think that's fair. You know, yeah. the, the the cost of you know, maybe upsetting your kids at the reward of, you know, a few extra passages. You know, probably nothing lost there. Yeah, I once asked Paula Priamos. Yeah, um, James's wife. Same kind of thing um, after her memoir came out, um, The Shyster's Daughter, which I, oh, I just love that book. And same thing, she was doing a speaking thing, and I asked her, what did you leave out? And it stopped her for a minute. So I was happy with myself because I stopped her. She had to really think about the question. It was a question she hadn't been asked before. And um, 
she said there was a lot about her relationship with her sister that she didn't, uh, she didn't put in. Yeah, I have I have the shyster. It's on my bookshelf. It's one of those. I, I think I think everyone who loves to read has a stack of books that they're trying to get to. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so I I have the book and I own it, but I, I need to I need I need to get to it. Although as I'm thinking about it, um, I kind of feel honored that you've read my books <laughs> and not Paula's books. <laughs> well, yeah. Now, now I'm thinking you know, as we're talking about it, I'm thinking. She'd you know she'd be another great memoirist to talk to. So now I'll have oh, extra motivation yes. to 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 read her book so then I, I can get her on the podcast. Because her book is is written in such a different way than either of my memoirs. Uh huh. But it's a fabulous memoir. It, it's just a fabulous book. Her writing is just so the yeah. craft of it is just there on every page. Well, now I'm excited to read it. I mean, I was already excited. You've just put me over the edge. Okay, great. And I remember too with the. Uh, talking to James Brown, and I, th- I think you might actually. I think you told me the same thing, but that uh, that in his case, I think he sort of. I think he sort of knew that he would probably play a part in her book, um, but he but he on the one hand he made a point of maybe not reading it or or not basically not standing over her shoulder to 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 hinder her you know her, her honesty in writing it, but I also sort of remember that. Um, there was some part of him that I don't know if he was, you know, nervous, but maybe, but maybe anxious to see exactly sort of, you know, how he ended up being painted in the book. I mean, cause, I mean, they're together and, uh, you know, so, so, so they're so, still together. And yet there's still a part of me that was worried to find out how he was painted in her, you know, of course, in her truth. Yeah, absolutely. But so the book goes, the dog book goes, um, starts when I'm a teenager. It doesn't obviously hit every aspect of my life it just sort of goes from dog to dog and that's the way it's set up and so and it sort of ends with those last three dogs that the last section Mm -hmm. is about those last three dogs and my life with them and and um I've had so many people tell me they finished the book and either walked their dogs which was (laughs) great or if they didn't have dogs um say that they were considering you know getting a shelter dog which is which is really great yeah that was my absolute response because i don't have a dog and i think even before i was done with the book i I was just like why don't i have a dog these these this these uh, every one of these stories even though each story ultimately ended with the you know with the with with how the dogs either you know you know passed away but it was still these beautiful stories and you know like i can still remember details of uh just yeah, you know, the simple details of, of like you writing about like coming home and then the dog being waiting for you and just 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 that stuff that wasn't even part of necessarily like say one of the not one of the more dramatic elements of the book but those are some of the things that stuck with me it's like oh my god that's wonderful that's beautiful i would love that relationship or or just the idea of you know whoever you are or whatever is happening in your life or whatever's going on like this like this dog is always happy to see you. Yes, and it's always your absolutely. buddy, and none of you know, nothing else matters. And then even beyond that, the sort of you know healing powers of a dog, you know, you know, you know psychologically, emotionally, whatever, just having a, a dog around can get you through you know whatever you know whatever is happening in your life. And they're just adorable. They are adorable, unless they're like Rufus and they're just kind of blockheaded and ugly. <laughs> but that was okay because yeah. he was adorable in the sense that he was just. That dog. I mean, there was nothing attractive about him in any way, <laughs> but I just adored that dog. And the title itself, too, because I'm thinking about this, you know, lessons I learned from the dogs who saved me. 
uh, from you know you know my reading of the book, and again, I suspect this was your purpose. I, I assume it was. Is on the one hand, you had dogs save you, maybe you know spiritually or emotionally, and in other cases, you had the dogs save you quite literally, where you you were on the on the precipice of being in a life-threatening situation and the dog actually saved you. So, so the, so the title uh, has multiple purposes, mm-hmm. you know, if I read it correctly. Yeah, absolutely. And it is interesting to consider the situations I ended up with my dogs um, throughout the book. And I think, I think the biggest lesson that my dogs taught me was in the beginning with my first dogs, I didn't know how to be a dog companion I was gonna say dog owner but we're getting away from that language right um I really didn't know how to care for dogs well of course with Rufus I was a teenager right Mm -hmm. but I tried to do the best I could with him yeah and then later I was a young married woman and with Sapo and so if I had known there were just certain things that I learned from them about what it means to um, have the responsibility of a dog and care for a dog yeah. and stuff as I learned as I went along. And that's why I say with with the last three, they got the best dog life I could possibly offer them because I learned all this from all the other dogs. Yeah. And so those three cast off, discarded, we don't want you any more dogs, just had this perfect, wonderful life. Yeah. And even yeah, even that, there's a nice sort of poignant lesson that you can, you can apply to, well, just life. And like, as you were saying, telling that story... Like I was applying it uh, to my writing, which 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 it's not nearly as you know, is uh, I don't know, honorable or whatever is you know taking care of a dog in this last few years, but that that idea of say I, I wrote my first novel, and it wasn't very good, but in the act of writing it, I sort of learned something about writing. So then the second novel was essentially benefited from that. And then that novel was better, but then writing that, I learned more about writing. Then the third novel becomes better. It's kind of like relationships, right? Oh, sure, that too. Early on, when we're young and yeah. we're we're trying to make it work, but we really we don't know ourselves. Yeah. And then you get another relationship, or being out of a relationship causes a little bit of self-examination. Mm-hmm. Hmm, what went wrong? How can I do this better the next time? And so hopefully. You grow with each one, and you're a little better with each one. Yeah, this book, it has, you know, the, the the book, it's got layers, is what we're saying. It goes deep, but it's also, again, it's one of those books, and, and it's my favorite type of book, I think, where, um, yeah, there really are layers of of lessons to be sort of taken from it, but they're not all directly on the page. I don't think there's, so you can read the book, and you can enjoy it for the stories on the page, and there's also there's also, I think, those layers in that subtext that if, you know, if, if as, as Kay and I just did, took a few minutes to kind of uh, examine some of the themes and ideas, it, you know, that's in there too. Which, again, is just a mark of a great writer, which as Kay Murphy is. Oh, well, thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> but I think there is something to be said from just pouring your heart, heart yeah. out onto the page, which is what yeah. ended up happening with that. That's book. the best thing you can do. I would, you know, if, if you know. I would tell that to any writer, even if you're writing fiction, because, you know, because I don't, I don't, I, you know, all my writing is fiction, but I still, even when I'm writing fiction, I try to write from a very, very sort of honest and, and, and truthful place. Because, uh, because you can do that. Like, I, you know, for anybody who's thinking about writing or uh, has aspirations of being a writer, just because you're a fiction writer doesn't mean you can't tap into your own sort of 
truths, be they emotional or whatever, and that you can tell you can tell a story that maybe that story never really happened, but you can tell it in a really, really honest way that's going to resonate with people in a very truthful, honest way. You know, like with, with Inside the Outside, you know, it's about can it's about a cult of cannibals up in the mountains, which, um, I, you know, I made it up completely. But I, I, I tried very hard to tap into a very honest place when I wrote it. And some of, you know, it's some of the best responses I get is finding out that people had their own very strong emotional connection to the book. They cried when they when they read the book or about certain characters. They related to certain characters. And, and sometimes, you know, the best thing, uh, I think for me about writing fiction or one of the best things, is when I'll meet a reader and they'll they'll start talking about one of my characters like they're a real person because they have a, they have a relationship with this person that even though I made them up, it came from such an honest place that it became a real person to them. Uh, so, so that would be the best thing, you know, as, as you said, just, you know, it, 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 the more I think of it, it's such an abstract idea, but it's real. I think if you're right, you sort of know what we're talking about to write from just be honest and truthful. I, I think that's a, that's probably a really great segue into talking about, Book number three. That's sort of what I was thinking. Ghost Grandma. Because <clears throat> it is my only published fiction work. Yeah. So after the, even the mysterious first first book was nonfiction. Correct. And so at this point, and you've had thoughts about, you've, you've, you've thought about writing fiction before. All my life. Ever had, since the fourth grade. Ever since Mrs. Walton said, oh, this is, this short story that you read, fill in that Irish name. <laughs> um this is really good. You could be a writer. So ever since a fourth grade, I, I just assumed, oh, Mrs. Walton is saying I could be a writer. I will. I'm going to do that. That's what I'm going to be. Yeah. That will be my identity as being a writer. I like that. So I'll just take that for myself and then I'm going to write books. And, and I did write books eventually, <laughs> but just nonfiction and nonfiction and nonfiction. <laughs> Universe, stop it. <laughs> and so in 2005... Um, I decided to do NaNoWriMo. Yeah. National Novel Writing Month. Happens in November, right? Happens in November. So so the idea behind NaNoWriMo is in 30 days you write 50,000 words. It could be fiction, it could be nonfiction, it could be that could be the end at the 50,000 words or it could be the first two-thirds of your novel or whatever it happens to be. But the idea is to get 50,000 words written yeah. in 30 days. So it comes out to something like, I don't know what it is. It's 1,600 words a day or something. Yeah. And again, for anybody who's never really tackled writing, like that's a lot of words, 50,000. So it's, so it's a, uh, but still some people actually, I think, knock it out. But please keep going. Yeah. A lot yeah. of people do. Yeah. Um, and so, so back then in 2005, NaNoWriMo had been going for a few years mm -hmm. at that point, but it was really starting to gain momentum. And I'd heard some other people talk about it, and I knew somebody who had done it, and I thought, there's just no way, because in November, I'm at my day job yeah. every day. So I thought then, so 1,600 words a day, that's 800 words in the morning and 800 words at night. Oh, dear God, there's no way I can do that. <laughs> Let me just try. Yeah. Because if I sit down, I, the one thing that I did that was interesting is I started counting up... Um, before November, I would, I started counting the words of my emails. Like, how much am I really <laughs> writing every day? 
because I'm emailing every day. Yeah. So, so how much am I able to produce every day? Just in somebody goes, oh my gosh, did you see that movie? And I'm emailing them back, la 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 la. Or a former student contacts me and says, can you help me with my <laughs> English paper? What do you know about, you know, Steinbeck or whatever it happens to be? And I find myself blah, 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 <laughs> just typing away yeah. happily without thinking, which is basically the idea behind NaNoWriMo is not to, not to think too hard on yeah. it. So I did it as an experiment because once I sort of added up the the word count of my emails, I thought, well, if I'm writing over a thousand words a day, just in emailing, just <laughs> in contacting my friends. So if I tell them goodbye for a month mm-hmm. um, or that my emails are going to be really short, like text messages, maybe I can do this. Maybe I can do 800 words in the morning when I first get up and 800 words in the evening after I get home from work. I should say, too, just to add to the craziness, um, my mom was living with me at the time. Oh, okay. So my mom had gotten to the point where she couldn't live alone anymore, and I had her move in with me. And that's an interesting story (laughs) in and of itself, which will never make it into a memoir. (laughs) So mom's there. So it's not like my life is my own. She had a lot of doctor's appointments and things that she had to do, and she wasn't getting around very well, so I was cooking dinner for us and so forth. Plus, mom at the door, you should go to bed. It's past your bedtime. Okay, working on this, mom. (laughs) Got to get this word count in. Um, But I did it as an experiment to see if I could just do the 50,000 words and to see if I could stop or at least temporarily silence the voices in my head Mm -hmm. that tell me, um, you don't know where you're going with this, so you should stop for a while and think it through. Yeah, That's a really frequent one. Um, nobody, the most frequent, nobody's probably going to read this anyway, so you could be watching really good television. (laughs) I've heard that voice, yeah. Yeah. Um, and you're really tired, but that's kind of always been a constant. So I wanted to see if I could silence the voices and just push through and push through. Yeah. So, so I don't know where the premise came from. I just remember walking across campus one day. And having this idea of a teenage girl whose grandmother dies. Part of the premise, I guess, came from uh, when my father died, my brother had a visitation. Mm-hmm. Uh, my oldest brother said dad came to him and, and sat on the end of the bed and talked to him and oh, a couple wow. nights after he died. And so I'd sort of grown up with the story because our dad died when we were young kids. And I'd always had that. So I had this idea... Um, Girl and her grandmother dies, she loves a grandmother, blah, 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 blah. You can kind of see how themes in my life overlap. <laughs> um, that's all I had. I just had the premise. Yeah. So so the first day, November 1st, it was just like, okay, what happens? I get to write about the thing happening. So in the morning before work, I write about the thing happening where um, she has a visitation from her grandmother She's thinking her grandmother really came in her room, but then when she gets up in the morning and goes in the kitchen and sees her mom and starts to tell her mom, Grandma woke me up last night, she realizes it's the day of her grandmother's funeral and grandmother's really dead, and she has that sort of realization. Mm -hmm. And then, so that's kind of the premise. And I thought through the book what would happen is she'd be trying to confront everybody's explanation of what happened. Uh And that kind of happens, but it sort of takes a backstory to all the other things that end up happening. And this book, as it turns out, is kind of an anti-bullying book. Oh, that's cool. 
So, and that was a big surprise to me. And mm-hmm. a lot of things were surprises. The biggest surprise was being able to push past the voices and shut them up and just keep typing no matter what. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't hear you. I don't hear you. I don't, like you do with your siblings when you're little. <laughs> and, and the other surprise was, especially at night, in the morning, because as you know, I get up very early <clears throat> yeah. at a ridiculous hour. So I would get in my 800 words before work. I would make a cup of tea, go in my office, work at the computer, write six or 800 words, feel good about that, go to work during the day as I was teaching, thinking about what's going to happen next. Come home, eat dinner, do the dishes, get mom taken care of, go back to my office, think, okay, all I have to do is write 800 words. Where was I? I know exactly what's going to happen. And maybe 150 or 200 words in, I'd start falling asleep because I was so exhausted. (laughs) Yeah. And a couple of times, I would get up the next morning, reread what I had written, had absolutely no memory whatsoever <laughs> of having written, and it was good. Yeah. And I would read it and just go, wow, look what I, what I wrote. Someone <laughs> wrote through my fingers. I don't know what happened. It was That's the muse. The I love that. It was absolutely like trancing. Yeah. And, and do you ever have the feeling, too, of like reading something and thinking, you know, like, this is really good. And if you put a gun to my head, I don't know if I could do that again. Yes. But I did it the once and I saved it. Save. Make sure you save. Oh my gosh, I don't want to lose this because this is like pretty really good writing stuff and I don't know where it came from. No, I didn't ever be able to do that again. And I don't know how I did it in the first place. And so I I did that every day for 30 days. And at the end of it, I had 51,000 words change. That's impressive. And then I took it and just put it away because I thought it had to not be good. I read it. When I, I like, I put it away for a couple of weeks and then I got it out and I read it yeah. thinking, oh, okay, this has got to be absolute crap. And then I read it and I liked it and I thought, you're just so in love with your own characters. What's <laughs> wrong with you? So I put it away again. I just kept putting it away. And yeah. then one summer I got it out and I went through it and I kind of polished it up. And I thought, someday when I have other things published, like the dog book or whatever. Mm-hmm. This would be worthwhile publishing, and then I just put it away again. And so for some, I have no idea. Some reason this summer, I got it out, cleaned it up, had to change things because technologically things have changed since 2005. Yeah, for the best, too. Because at one point in the book, she's thinking about, she has to get her phone out of her pocket and flip it open. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, whoa, I have to change that. (laughs) And uh, Yeah, because I'm... I'm, uh... Well, so I'm reading the book. I, I told you I'm not, I'm not done with the book because it's it's still relatively new. I just got it a few days ago, but there's there's little um, like for example, I was reading uh, and there's like a reference to to Bruno Mars, and so he's uh, you know depending on when you listen to this podcast, uh, at the moment he's a very <laughs> very popular contemporary pop star. Yes, but I also know that when you started the book, you know he he wasn't in in the he wasn't. He, you know, he wasn't a star yet, so so I suspect that's probably one of those things yep. that you that that uh, that you added into to sort of bring it bring it up to date, I suppose. All my celebrity musicians changed. <laughs> All of them did because I went back through and went, oh my gosh, people are not even going to know who that is now. Sad to say, <laughs> somebody really popular back in two thousand five. And the fun thing too was that um, there are at least five characters who were taken directly from my high school students at the time Uh i mean directly directly (laughs) directly um just built off them and of course one of the heroes is is a boy named chase 
and um, and that was his real name. I told him I was going to put him <laughs> in the book, and and when I was finished, I gave him the pages that included him. Yeah, um, got his authorization, even though I don't use his real last name in the book. But yeah. um, Chase is Chase, and the, some of the other ones are changed. Some of them are just absolutely directly from kids I was teaching at the time. Um, I just patterned the characters after them and the way yeah. they spoke. But others of them, um, Mrs. Lance, the evil English teacher, was my evil English teacher when I was in <laughs> high school. Um, and a couple of other people were just people from my past, too. That yeah. it, it's interesting how, as a writer, especially with doing something like this where you're not working off an outline, you're yeah. just letting the story unfold. Yeah. However, that particular day in your life when you're at work thinking when i get home i have to write another 800 words what's going to happen next yeah so you think i need a character to do so and so or to be you know a character as a vehicle yeah who's that going to be and you're starting to you know you ask yourself who could carry this off who could you know complete this task that yeah. i have they're not a major character they're just a minor character and it it was kind of funny how people would just pop up and suddenly i would go oh okay <laughs> demisha this is you yeah yeah and on, that's also just that's just good writing advice again for anybody listening who's thinking about writing or you're maybe you're learning how to write is sometimes when you're writing fiction uh there's nothing wrong with just pulling out of your real life pulling from your real life you know of course just taking a it could just be a it could be it could be you could take a whole person and then describe them from your point of view you can just take a character trait from somebody you know well uh sometimes i find that if i'm sort of I and mean, you maybe if i'm sort of if i feel like i'm like stuck and I don't know what to say about a particular character. Um, I'll just, I'll just dip into my own backyard. So I'll write about myself. I'll, I'll think uh, maybe I'll take a childhood memory and give it to this character. And very often, you know, that'll eventually blossom into something, you know, where they, they become their own person. But um, that's, that is a good way to, it's just a good way to write is to sort of write about yourself, write about people, you know. Uh, and of course, you know, it, it's, it's, if you think they might be sensitive, then, you know, whatever, change, change the color of their hair, give them different genitals, whatever. <laughs> That's true. Change their name, as I did with my, my little evil boy um, <laughs> who emerges, because he was a real, he was a real person. Yeah. Um, yeah. And in the I way that people see. sort of get what they, you know, if that person actually reads the, you know, reads your story and they recognize certain traits in the character, but it's not, a, but they're, maybe they're a nasty character, they'll just assume it's somebody else anyway. Exactly. <laughs> they're, not, they're not going to assume that that's them. Yeah, it's, and, it's exactly true. Yeah. Actually, with this boy, I think he would probably hope it was him. <laughs> uh-huh, I want to be that guy. I want to be the bad guy. Yeah, it's a it's a really sweet book. I, you know, again, I'm not uh, you know I'm not done with. It. I, I wanted to be done with it before we talk, but I'm still I'm a, I'm a slow reader. Um, in my experience of reading, like I've read books from, uh, like like Anne Lamott. I, I don't know if I don't know if you've read much yeah, Anne Lamott. She's a she wrote uh, her her big sort of seminal book is uh, Bird by Bird, which is sort of a you know, which every book. writer should read. Yeah, if, yes, if you're absolutely. a writer, you know, even, you know, have it on your bookshelf. Even even if you if you if you might not have time to read it, just have it on your bookshelf. You'll be glad you did. So I find with her books that um, I've read a, a great deal of her nonfiction, and it's um, terrific. And she's also done some you know novels, and I don't know what the difference is. But for me, they're not nearly as engaging. I've never finished mm-hmm. one of her novels. Her nonfiction stuff, it, for me, is riveting. Mm-hmm. The fiction, for her, she's whatever it is. You know, she's obviously, you know, for me, for my money, a great writer. 
but there seems to be sort of a transition between nonfiction and fiction that uh, whatever whatever magic is there doesn't cross over. Um, in your case, I'm enjoying Ghost Grandma, and, and you know, it, writing a writing a fictional narrative, even though you know writing is writing, and you know scenes are scenes, and you know, but there's still something different, I think, between writing a nonfiction story and a, a fictional story. Did you find any any significant uh, differences? That's a good question. I, I it did give me um, probably a greater respect and admiration for fiction writers. Okay. Um, because I think writing memoir sort of made me lazy, <laughs> in the sense of I already know what the storyline is. Yeah. I just have to get it down on the paper in yeah. an engaging way, in an honest way. Yeah. With this, I had no idea where the story was going. I literally had no idea. I only had the premise, and that was it. Yeah. And so every day, writing was, what's going to happen today? And and you have to manufacture that, and you have to manufacture it in an engaging way. Yeah. And you hope, at the end, you have some sort of arc. Yeah. Um, and something happens, and your character changes, and you hope all that at the end. And yeah. I, I hoped for that and tried to work toward that. But I tried, again, I tried not to think about it too much. I just yeah. wanted to tell a story. Um, so it was, I think, much, much harder because I didn't know where it was going and yeah. I had to manufacture where it was going. Once I did it, I realized, okay, that wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to be mm-hmm. to manufacture a storyline and stuff that happened because because I just felt that deadline looming all the time. <laughs> I, something has to yeah. happen to her. I can't just sit here. I have to have something happen next. It's always a great motivator is the deadline. Yeah, it, it really was in this case. And interestingly enough, an adult friend, because really, I want all my teenage friends to to read it and then tell me their input. Yeah. Um, an adult friend recently read it. I didn't expect him to. I He just knew about it and he just bought it. He didn't tell me. He just bought it and read it and mm-hmm. then emailed me and said, I just posted a review on Amazon for you because I loved your book, Ghost Grandma. And I thought, you're my age. Why are you reading this teenage <laughs> Um but the interesting, he asked me in the email, was it based on your granddaughter, on one of your granddaughters? It is not at all. It's not anything like Reese or Hallie, um, who are teenagers now. And I didn't have them in mind at all. But he did point out that there's sort of the theme of with the protagonist, whose name, by the way, is Brett, but it's a girl. She has a boy's name. It's a girl with a boy's name. I think that was like a secret wish of mine, having had my name that I didn't want. I wanted to be like Kenneth or something. The mysterious S and SK. I would have rather been Steve or Stevie or something. But um, he he said, I see a theme in it of this teenage girl having adults who are supportive and kind of there to encourage and mentor her. Mm-hmm. And so he said, were you writing that part from your experience? Which, when I read his email, made me cry. I started oh, wow. crying because I realized it was the lack of that that I provided for my protagonist. Yeah. I wanted Brett to have that because it was the one thing all my life growing up I never had. My dad died, my mom became an absentee parent, yeah. and then that was it until I was married and had an absentee husband. Yeah. So through all of my teenage, my kid years, my teenage years, there was never an adult there to encourage. After Mrs. Walton said in the fourth grade, <laughs> you could be a writer if you wanted to. That was the last teacher who ever encouraged me, 
nudged me in a direction, said I could do something good or right or strong or correctly. Yeah. That was that was it, and I was just on my own. And so, inadvertently, subconsciously, I kept bringing these adults into her life <laughs> that could be encouraging in some way. I, I was going to ask you, were you before you read his email? Was that a, was that something that you were aware of? Wholly unaware of it. Yeah. Until I read it. That's why I started crying because yeah. I went, oh my God, that really is in there. And why did I do this, Brett? Oh, duh. <laughs> because that's what I never had. Yeah. I, I find that those are, uh, again, I feel like this is a, a, an opportunity to offer maybe like a, a lesson to, to writers that one of the, well, I'll preface this by saying from my point of view, it's not a rule by any stretch, but I kind of feel like maybe one of the worst things you can do or one of the most, I don't know, uh, damaging things you can do or just whatever with your writing is to maybe go into it with maybe a theme in mind or with, with themes or to, or to, or to, to, to themes or metaphors or whatever. And that, uh, and to actively sort of try to write about those things. Cause very often <clears throat> it's going to show and it's going to be clunky. Whereas in my experience as a writer, uh, I try to t- I try to tell the whatever the, the the story on the page, I tell that as honestly as I can, and I just try to be as devoted to the story as devoted to the story as I can be, kind of trusting that there's going to be some themes, some personal stuff, subconsciously, it's going to find its way in the story. I might not know it's there, and it might not be until the second or third draft that it's done that I'll recognize it. But then I also know if I try to write that stuff it probably wouldn't come out very elegantly. It would probably be very obvious and clunky. So where in your case, there's a very poignant theme that, uh, that, you know, that one of your readers picked up on. And, you know, if, you know, someday this book is taught in, you know, in middle schools and teachers are analyzing it with their students, and this is one of those things that they can talk about, they'll be like, man, S.K. Murphy, she's so goddamn brilliant that she found a way <laughs> to, you know, because if, you know, to bring this in. Um, but then a lot of, a lot of re- readers find out that, you know, um, yeah, the writer had no idea. They were just telling the story, but subconsciously this very poignant thing for them got sort of, it found its way in there, but they had no idea. But if you're writing honestly, that stuff finds its way on the page whether you, whether you know it or not. That's amazing that you say that because the most intimidating writers to me are the writers that are interviewed on NPR <laughs> and they say very casually and sort of this just really relaxed and casual way. They'll say, well, well, Neil... I, for most of my life, I've been very interested in the themes of whatever it is, fill in the blank, father-son relationships, or uh, the lack of parental guidance, or whatever it happens to be. And and so when I wrote fill in the blank novel title, I, I, I really wanted to take all of that interest in that and explore that subject. And I think... I could never be that brilliant. They're so brilliant. Yeah. I could never do that. I'm just, I'm going to stop writing. <laughs> I will never write fiction because I could never do that. Yeah. Yeah. No, just, uh, just decide that you're going to write about cannibals up in the mountains and, Good and, idea. and write about those cannibals as, as authentically as you can. And then any of you, any, any poignant personal stuff is going to find, but here, here's the other trick is that, uh, once the beautiful poignant stuff finds its way in there, as people notice it, just take credit for it. Like, oh, yeah. Exactly. Absolutely. I meant to do that. I meant to do that, and thank you for noticing. Well, in your case, so then you have Timber Marlowe, who ends up being this really strong, strong woman, which is what resonated with me in reading your book. 
and and it's just there. <laughs> and I don't know if you just had this feminist agenda. What well, I started okay, it. So you, that, that part, so you yeah. did. <laughs> I absolutely. <laughs> of course I did. Of course you Obviously. did. Obviously. Mm-hmm. And you wanted to pull all these threads together and you thought what is the best way to show this young girl who ends up in this seemingly horrific situation and emerging from it as if in a rebirth. Yeah. Fires involved. Yeah. Yeah, I wasn't just trying to scare people. You planned it all. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it is brilliant. <laughs> I'll, I'll, one thing I can tell you, uh, that it's one of those things where I didn't plan it, but in uh, I think towards, you know, the closer I got to the final draft, I recognized it. And w- once I recognized it, then I, then I felt comfortable sort of playing with the theme a little bit, is um, the sort of theme of, say, uh, well, well, the theme of being an outsider, I guess, which is sort of, or, or, or more specifically, the theme of that sort of coming in a, the, the coming of age theme of you know you're growing up, and whether it's, whether it's a, whether it's you grow up in, in a household or a neighborhood, and like that's your world. You know the the bubble could be your house, it could be your bedroom, it could be your school. That's all you know. And then one day, you step just a little bit further away from that, and you realize, holy shit, there's like a whole world. Like this place that I grew up in isn't all there is to the world. And there's different people and different ideas. In different points of views, some of those points of views scare me. Some of those points of view resonate with me in such a way that's so honest that I'm almost scared that what if I never learned that point of view? And so, um, and so that that's a theme that uh, that I think turned up in my book, and it resonates very much with me. But it, I did it did with me as a reader too. But as but when I was writing it, I had no. I, I there was that's one of those things where I wish I could take credit for it. But it's kind of worked its way in there. Oh and, my gosh, that yeah. <laughs> that is the one thing that resonated with me the most in your book. Really, was coming out of that because that's kind of how I felt as a kid. Yeah, was so sheltered in this little Irish Catholic life. Yeah, but then losing my dad, so yeah, so that aspect is taken away, and then my mom just being the absentee parent, where I was kind of just thrust into a world that I had no idea how to negotiate. Same kind of thing. Just yeah. emerging out of it, going, well, how do I make sense of that? This, how do I navigate through this? I didn't know. Yeah, and, and I think, yeah, like for me, like when, like, like I grew up, um, like I, like I grew up going to going to the, uh, you know, go, going to church. As my, you know, uh, my family was Catholic, and it felt like the the neighborhood I was in, everybody I went to school with was Catholic. Everybody went to the same church that I went to, and it was so. Because this was my world, you know, from my house, the, the church I went to was literally around the block. Sometimes we, we would walk there, uh, I would see friends from school. So without anybody saying so, I developed this world. It was like, well, yeah, this is this is what everybody does. And then uh, and then reached a point in my life where maybe, you know, I stepped out just a little bit further than my bubble. And I met other people who had a completely different experience or a completely different point of view. And for me, it was it was probably for me the most powerful thing was that um, I never felt, I never felt connected to my, you know, the Catholic church. I grew up going there and I went to church every Sunday and all that stuff. It was part of my life. I never felt connected to it, but I thought, but this is, you know, this is, this is what, this is what the world does. And so for me, it was a very powerful sort of freeing thing to realize that, oh, it doesn't have to be this way. There's lots of choices. There's lots of points of view. Uh, this doesn't have to be be my routine. Is because this is what everybody does. Because it's not what everybody does. It's just the circle that I kind of grew up in. And so when I was, you know, going over, you know, when I was working on inside the outside, 
and I started to recognize that where, you know, Timber grew up in this cult and everything, you know, uh, even down to the sort of religious aspect of, you know, of the, of the cult she lived in. And then, you know, when, when she sort of steps out of the cult and then sees this whole different world, all that stuff is really personal and I want to take credit for it, <laughs> but that's the personal stuff that sort of massaged its way in where I thought I was just telling a story about, you know, cannibals and horror and stuff. The personal stuff found its way in there. That's amazing. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, we've been talking for a while, but I, I want to, um, we'll, we'll, we'll wrap this up, but not before I've told this story before. I, in fact, I told this story on the first podcast, the story about how I became a writer and how you were, <laughs> you were a central figure in that, uh, and I think I told it in detail, but, you know, whatever, I can't remember. It's only been a few episodes ago, but either way. Uh, but I want to take the chance to tell it with you and actually to get your point of view on the story since you're here. So You should just let me tell the story, though. Oh, in, in fact, you know what? Yeah, you tell your truth. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It's my truth on the page. Wait, it's my truth digitally. Yeah. So my truth digitally is that... Um, this is such a wonderful story, too, because, as I said, I didn't get encouragement from any teacher, and we're excluding college from that. Yeah. Um, from fourth grade on, Mrs. Walton, you could be a writer, blah, blah, blah. So eventually in my life, um, I, I was married. I went through a divorce. I started college at the age of 30 at Chafee College. Mm -hmm. Went to Chafee for two years, transferred to UC Riverside, um, got a degree, got a teaching credential, eventually worked on my master's degree while I was teaching high school full time. I don't recommend it. Don't do it. Um, <laughs> not if you're raising four kids simultaneously as a single parent and three of them are teenagers. I'm just saying. <laughs> but the one thing I wanted to do when I got my master's in literature was teach at Chafee because mm -hmm. I had had a teacher at Chafee who finally, after all those years, was a kind and a nice man. And as I was exiting the school after my two years there, I went to see him on his office hours. And he said, what are you going to do with your life? And I said, I'm going to be a teacher. And he said, learn how to pat yourself on the back because nobody else will. <laughs> he gave me great advice. He was, he was a great guy. And he said, if you ever get your master's, come back and teach for me. So I got my master's and then called him up. Turns out he wasn't just an English prof anymore. He was now in charge of personnel and hiring for the English department, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> give me a job and so he did teaching teaching 1a and so at the satellite campus in fontana mm -hmm. which is where i taught my first um college class and they just opened that was like the first semester yeah just the campus was so new that they had a meeting with us there and the plastic was still on the like rolly chairs for the offices <laughs> and another teacher and i started having like races around the hallway because you know it was circular and yeah. you could, yeah wait <laughs> yeah, not very professional on our part. But I had that first English 1A class. And so um, who knew how grueling that was going to be? Because you assume in an English 1A class, you're going to be reading these delightful essays that your students are going to be <laughs> producing. Not tons and tons of crap and horrible grammar. <laughs> and so I was un wholly unprepared for that. And so every week I tried to give my class an essay to write so we could talk about it and go, okay, let's go over this, don't do this. It was basically, stop doing this, stop doing this, <laughs> stop doing this, stop writing bad, stop, okay, learn where the commas go, that kind of stuff. But this this one 
this one writer, this one student, this one name kept coming up uh-huh. more and more. And it was Martin Lestraps. <laughs> and I didn't know who you were in the class. I just knew that your writing was like a diamond in the rough and just really delightful. <laughs> and so I got in the habit of every Sunday when I would grade essays, I would go through my stack and I would find your essay, whatever you wrote, <laughs> and I would put it on the bottom. So I would know that that was my reward. If I got through all the other crappy ones, eventually <laughs> I would get to something that was going to make me smile. And that's not to say that you were a trained professional writer at that point. No, not even close. It's just that you had such an engaging, honest, I don't even know how to describe the quality of your writing voice. It was just so far above everybody else in the class in terms of the just the quality and and the fluency of it. Because you got the idea that every essay was kind of like telling a story. Yeah. Like, here's a narrative. It's supposed to make sense all through the whole thing from the beginning to the end, which your essays always did. And so I remember in one class, um, and I think that's the class where I had written something in the margin about you having the capability to be a writer. Of course, mm-hmm. channeling Mrs. Walton, as I did. And then I asked who you were, because I wanted to put a face with a name. Yeah. And so I asked who you were, where you were, and you were sitting off in the side. And I always just remembered you sitting in that same place after that. <laughs> but truly, I guess we never know. I mean, you left that class, and I didn't hear from you for five years. Yeah. So I didn't know what happened to you after that class. And honestly, you know, it wasn't like I was thinking, and and what's going on with Martin Lestraps these days? It was just, <laughs> the, you know, it's college. It's oh, not yeah. like you have the kids for an entire year like I have now and you kind of wonder about Julie or Johnny it was just that you disappeared for five years and then I'll let you take over the story at that point in time but you reemerged. yeah well what so so what happened was you set you set me up on a path that not even at the time I think even to this day I don't know I don't know if you'll I don't know if you will ever be able to completely appreciate you know the path that you put me on because I was that was you know it was your first semester as a college professor. Um, I'm pretty sure it was my first semester in college just at all. And so when I got to Chafee, I was terrified. Like I'd finished high school. I'd, I'd wrapped up a, a mediocre high school career. Uh, I, I'm adding, you know, maybe slightly above a C average, but even beyond the grades, nothing. When I left high school, there was, I, I left with nothing tangible. I left with nothing, nothing that I felt like, okay, I can take this and start my life. All I knew, in fact, I remember my senior year, I can. I still have memories of just hanging out and just being, just being terrified. I was like, "Oh my god, this is you know, I, what the fuck am I going to do? This is this is going to be over, and I have no idea what's going to happen. And there's you know, the, the world's going to expect stuff of me. And there's probably going to be, how do you how do you get a job? How do you make money? How do you do anything with your life? And I, and, and I and I think sort of, I think maybe, some somewhere somewhere in my head or my heart or whatever, I always felt like I wanted to I want to do I want to do something. I want to do something. I want to, I want to do something good, but I had nothing. And as far as like English goes, you know, as far as my mediocre high school career went, um, I always did well in my English classes. Like it always came easy to me, but, uh, on the one hand, none of my teachers encouraged me. So if I was doing well, nobody pointed it out. So I didn't care. And because it came easy to me and I was, I was very insecure both as a student, I think also just like intellectually, I've always been very insecure that everybody's smarter than me. Everybody knows more than me. So if something comes easy to me, it must be easy for everybody because I'm a dummy. 
So so if I so if I can do it, this is you know. So if, so it, the fact that I was doing well in English was like, well, obviously, anybody can do this. So there was no part of me that thought I should do something with this. So so when I got into your class, it was my first year in college. I already had one foot ready to drop out because I was prepared to fail. Just oh my gosh. Whatever you know, I had no idea what was going to happen, and I took your class, and I still remember the very first. It, it was it was like an in class assignment. I probably just to get us writing, give give you something, and it was um, you asked us to write about like three magazines, mm-hmm. and and as you said, sort of just instinct. I I think just because I didn't know what else to do with it, I turned it into a story. And I was like, well, you know, it was a story about I went to the mall to pick up my mom from work, but I was there early, so I went to the bookstore. And while I was there, I picked up this one magazine. And then, you know, so I still sort of fulfilled the assignment, but I was sort of... And again, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't trying to be creative. It was just sort of the most interesting way I could tackle this assignment, so whatever. And then as soon as I gave it to you, turn it in, the thought, I was like, oh, fuck. It was like first day class, and I already fucked up. I did the assignment wrong. (laughs) She's already going to hate me. And, it was the only creative <laughs> response to the. Yeah. And I and I remember the next class you were passing out paper, and I was I, I think I was like waiting, you know, and there was a point where you were passing out papers, and you stopped and and you were looking at it, and I think somehow I knew it was mine, but in the complete sort of like negative dreading sense, and then uh, and then you kind of asked like you know, uh, like who who's Martin, and then I, I there was a part of me that probably didn't want to raise my hand. Because <laughs> I was scared, because because I, I figured I fucked it up, and then uh, and then so I, I I copped to it, and then you waited a beat, and in a very sort of you know sort of serious you know you said uh that's pretty good, and then you gave it to me, and and it was very low key, but but like for me it was like just just I was like holy shit really I didn't fuck up, you might have even mentioned and I could be I could be revising history but I feel like you might have even mentioned like. It's not exactly what I asked for, but it's pretty, you know, it's pretty good, that sort of thing. Then the first essay, and this is the one you'll remember, and I... Is that the one about your dog? No, this one was about, you might, this one was about, uh, I had a job at Thrifty's, and uh, I did some... Uh, oh, oh, I did, oh. <laughs> I'm trying to think if I, if I told, if I haven't told this story on the podcast yet, I will at some point. Basically, I was an ice cream scooper at Thrifty's. And uh, got story. got into a bad habit of you know it started small it started just sort of you know I was, I was literally sweeping one day and there was a piece of candy on the floor and so like I justified in my head where I was like well I'm sweeping and if uh, if I'm sweeping stuff on the floor it's trash and if that candy's on the floor it's trash so I'm gonna throw it away but what if instead of putting it in the trash I throw it away in my apron and then <laughs> yeah and then yeah so I like I justified this whole thing of like <laughs> taking this candy and that sort of you know and that sort of paved the way from like I that turned into ice cream eventually started taking money out of the cash register I'll tell the whole story another time but by the time I wrote that essay it was not a biographical essay is what, is what it was and so essentially without realizing it I was basically doing a memoir but I yeah, I never even heard the word up to that point so I told the story about this thing that happened to me because uh, it was a really big deal in my life because eventually you know got found out it was a whole very yeah, I was like 17 but it was like the, the you know huge dramatic thing in my life and my family and stuff so I wrote this essay, and again, completely convinced that I did it wrong. Completely convinced that I fucked the essay up, and and I had these mixed feelings of like, it was extreme. It was it was so extremely cathartic to write the essay, and that you know my mom read it, and it, it felt like you know, between the two of us, it brought some closure to this thing that sort of you know 
she was really upset and disappointed. You know, so it was like this whole thing. Aww. But then I had to turn it in. I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's good, but I fucked it up. So then <laughs> so I, so I turned in this essay. And then you probably graded them like maybe like a week later or whatever. And you said that you were going to read some essays to the class. The, you know, like, like two essays, I think. So you started reading this essay, and literally it was like, you know, a couple lines in. My first, I was like, oh, that sounds familiar. It's obviously not mine, because she wouldn't <laughs> read mine, but that's familiar. And then about, you know, I'm sure you got into the first paragraph, and I realized that, holy shit, she's reading my essay. <laughs> like, she's she's singled out my essay, the one that I could have sworn that I fucked up on, and she's reading it to the class. And you you probably don't remember this, but from, from my point of view, it was like the the class was totally locked into it and the parts that were funny they were laughing out loud the parts that were dramatic they were they they were (laughs) gasping and i was just sitting there just like holy shit that's what happened to me in the fourth grade this is the most amazing thing yes and that probably that might have been enough but then the the kicker was you passed the essay back and you gave one of those very nice teacher notes at the end of the essay and as now, now that i'm a teacher myself i i wouldn't i wouldn't blame you if it was just you know one more in a series of like, yeah, this is really nice, or whatever. Um, but you, you said, you know, I can almost, I can almost see it verbatim. It was like, you know, uh, hey, you're pretty good at this. You should think about studying. You should think about majoring in journalism. I think that was your suggestion. Um, but basically, at the root of it is, you know, uh, you know, you're good at this. You should, you, you should do this more. And 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 you had no idea that I was a terrified 18 year old kid with no path in my life. And that you literally said you're good at something, and like I fucking took that and I and I ran with it. And, I, and in fact, I literally ran with it. I took it straight from that class. My mom was working at the Montclair Plaza. She worked at Nordstrom's at the time. I literally went straight from Fontana to, Aww, to Nordstrom's. That's so sweet. Homework in hand. Just got it back. <laughs> Homework in hand. Went into the mall to Nordstrom's to show my mom this paper I did, and essentially, you know, be like, I, I think I'm good at something. I think I can do that. I think I can do something with this. And from that point forward, you set me on a path that, you know, if, if for no other reason, on the one hand, you encouraged me. On the other hand, I had no idea what to do with my life. And it's basically taken me through the last, whatever, 18 years of my life. We're now... Uh, now oh, my gosh. Has it been that long? I know. Jeez. <laughs> I, I, you know, it, it's been 18 years. <laughs> Where, you know, I, I've published my book. I'm a, I'm a professor myself. I studied English. I have a you know my master's degree and a bachelor's and every, from that moment forward, everything that's happened in my life, your fingerprints are on it. For the rest of my life, your oh. fingerprints are on it, <laughs> and uh, and I never forgot it. And so that's why when you, you know when when I found you five years later, I never forgot you. And and there was always there was always any any milestone that I reached where you know, I wrote my first story or I got a story published or something good happened. There was always like some small regret in my heart is like oh man i wish i wish Kay knew about this i wish i could tell Kay. i wish whatever and um the way i found you five years later was i was looking for a writing contest i was like this you know i was looking for the the next step in my progression as a writer and i thought i should find like a contest and see you know maybe whatever so i was looking at a contest and i found I, i eventually sort of found my way into the uh i think it was like the website for the california writers club inland empire branch and then there was a Kay Murphy in the club, and then there was like an email attached to it. I don't remember if there if there was a picture or not, but I remember that like I never forgot your name, and I was like, all right, well, she's a writer, she's in the Inland Empire, 
It could be her. So then, so then, then and that's when I sent the email that uh, I'm, I suspect you remember that probably started with, I have no idea if you were this person <laughs> or if you would even remember me because I was this quiet kid that sat in the class, but basically changed my life and here's what's going on. And, um, and it turned out to be you. It was me. How many Kay Murphys could there be? Actually, there's a famous poet named Kay Murphy. Is there? As far as I'm concerned, there's a famous memoirist named Kay Murphy. Okay, thank you. Well, and then there's that S on the beginning of my name, so it's yeah. first initial S, Kay Murphy, which she doesn't have. I, I've yeah. at least got an initial. So. Yeah, the mysterious S. That's right. And uh, yeah, and I and, and you know, and then and then then I and I've held on to you ever since. And so that was, let's see if we're doing five years later. So that was. I guess maybe 13 years ago. That's amazing. 13 years. It doesn't feel like it, does it? It doesn't feel like it. And it's been it's been exciting to see everything that you've done. It makes me happy every time. And, of course, I have bragging rights <laughs> forever, right? Oh, you absolutely do. Yeah. Anything good. That's the thing. And, and, and I don't say this just because you're here. I talk about you all the time. In fact, I've talked about you on previous episodes. Uh, so this Aww. is, yeah. I, I've, you're, you know, very often on on the first day of my own classes, I'll tell the story about the teacher who changed my life forever, and I'll tell the students, you know, uh, the you know the fact that I'm standing in front of you right now, it's only because there was a teacher once upon a time, who put me on this path. You know, you're there forever, forever. We're hand in hand. Anything, you know, <laughs> one day, should I should I be on, <laughs> should I be on Oprah's book club? Is that's the pinnacle of you know, for you if I'm ever on Oprah's book club. You better not fail to mention me if you're ever on Oprah's book club. Not only one of it, the only reason I'll I'll tell Oprah. <laughs> the only Please reason do. that I'm here, there's one, and her name is S. K. Murphy. Oh, thank you. If you're listening to the sound of my voice, <laughs> if you've read my book, if my writing has brought you any joy. Oh gosh. Then you owe S. K. Murphy. <laughs> A debt of gratitude. That's the only reason. Thank if you. you fell in love with Timber Marlowe, the only re- the only reason Timber Marlowe exists is because of S.K. Murphy. So thanks, my friend. You're welcome. Wow, that's amazing. It's true. I, yes, it is true. <laughs> but it's it's so amazing and wonderful, and we've talked about it before. But it really is. As a teacher, you never know. You can never know what, you know, the power that you have to be influential in a life. I remember times when after you and I reconnected Mm -hmm. and you were struggling because you had a particular teacher who did not love your work. Yeah. And so I think to the writers out there, there's always going to be someone who criticizes you that's their issue and their truth mm-hmm. but not yours and that should not deter you and when i had an early the early manuscript of ghost grandma which is essentially the same as it is now um i had a group of friends read it and one of the people who read it was a really really close friend of mine we were really close and he read it and said all the characters were stereotypes and he was a fiction writer and a screenplay writer. And he said, and I said, actually, they're all, they're all based on kids that I know that are my high school students. And all the ones that he objected to were all just the kids who were students. And I just, I wrote their words <laughs> and I used them and the way they talked. And, yeah. 
and the things they said. And he was really, really critical. And I think it's another reason why the book sat in a drawer for so long. Oh, yeah. Because his, I almost said his name, his <laughs> words kept just sort of echoing in yeah. my head. And yeah, that, that negative stuff, unfortunately, is almost more powerful than the positive is. stuff. And it's extremely difficult to, to get over to, to get over that. Because we tend to dismiss what's positive mm-hmm. and think, oh, Miss Murphy probably writes that on everybody's yeah. paper. Yeah. She probably says that to everyone. You know? Mm-hmm. And the thing but the things that are critical, we ought we immediately accept. Yeah. Oh yeah, I knew it all along. Yeah. I'm <laughs> yeah. crap. I said, thank God somebody was finally honest with me and now I can stop writing and just watch TV. Yeah. Cause it, cause it, uh, it jibes with the, there's that voice in your head saying like, yeah, this is shit. Why are you doing that? Exactly. And then if somebody puts voice to it, it's like, well, there it is. I mean, I knew it, but then he said it. So, so there it is. It, it is. I knew it was crap. So why did I bother? And it's so that, you know, probably one of the great triumphs of any writer is that they to, to get past that enough to, to finish a book and to put it out in the world. One of the things that, um, when I published Inside the Outside, I was out in the world. One of the things that I was terrified most about was, you know, uh, negative reviews or, you know, not, I don't even know if it was my ego, just that, just that, you know, just that I'm, I think any artist is probably more sensitive by our nature and that uh, the negative stuff, I was terrified actually to, to find a review. So initially the, uh, the response up front was overwhelmingly positive. <clears throat> and that was really great because <clears throat> it helped sort of create a buffer for, you know, later negative reviews that would come down the line. And so the fact that the initial re- reviews were overwhelmingly positive was a, like, that was great, you know, for me. Like, it created a buffer. So then, like, later, I still I st- remember the first bad review I read. The buffer wasn't big enough <laughs> for, for that. It kind of ruined my day. Of course. But uh, but eventually, once I got enough reviews... Um, I, I eventually, I eventually cultivated a a mindset that I would, that I would tell any writer to to, to adopt, is that, you know, if, if somebody doesn't like your work, and and they wrote and they took the time to write a bad review, but at worst somebody read your work, and they didn't like it, it doesn't mean that you did a poor job, it just means that book's not for them. Exactly. They're gonna find the book that's for them. It's just not yours. You know, they wrote a they wrote a review and it was a bad review and of course that that never feels good, but don't let that take you off your path. You know, as long as you're writing honestly, you're doing what you're supposed to do. And the thing that I learned, and I suspect you learned it as well, you know, is that whatever you're writing, there's an audience for it. Yes. You just have to find each other. Yes. Every time somebody doesn't like your work, they're not in the audience. Okay. And every time somebody loves it, pull them into the circle and embrace that audience. And then for the rest, you know, like I'm writing a book, I'm, well, I'm writing a trilogy now, but, but as I write now, the most exciting thing for me is that I have an audience. I didn't have an audience when I wrote Inside the Outside, but now I know that there's people out in the world who really enjoy my writing. They enjoy the stories that I'm telling, and it's the most exciting thing to, to sit down at the computer and write this story because I know that there's an audience waiting for it. There's still that voice of, you know, this is shit. Some people aren't going to like it. What are you wasting your time for? Go play video games, but then you know, as long as I can get past that, you know, and and also there's the idea of people won't like it. Not everybody will like it. That's just true. Uh, one of the things I learned with Inside the Outside is that the more um, the more successful the book became, the bigger the audience became, and the bigger the audience became, 
the higher the probability that people weren't going to like it. And that's when the negative reviews started coming in. It's because now more people are finding it. And, you know, so it's that is sort of a double-edged sword is, you know, the book was way more successful than I thought it'd be, but it also, you know, found its way to people who were going to hurt my feelings unknowingly, you know, whatever. Or maybe knowingly. No, 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 unknowingly. No, definitely knowingly. <laughs> well, they wanted to. Yeah, I, you know, it's, it's so funny, you know, even when I go on Twitter now, I'm so hyper aware of anything I'm going to say because I realize people see stuff that, you know, like, like if I, if I have an observation about a celebrity, my thought is they're so fucking famous. They're never going to see this tweet. But what if they did? Would this hurt their feelings? Because like now I know, like I've read reviews or I've seen, you know, maybe something on Twitter or Facebook or whatever that somebody out in the world probably had no idea that I was going to come across it. And if they did what they've. Well, maybe they'd say it. I don't know. Maybe they wanted me. <laughs> maybe they wanted me to see it. But you know, uh, like I've read some very honest reviews about my work where somebody didn't like it. Where I suspect they probably didn't. They they probably didn't realize that I that I might come across it. And you know, um, not that I wouldn't want them to be honest, but but at the same time, it raises your sensitivity. Oh, which absolutely, is really great. yeah. And that's, I think that that has happened to me as well, um, because as you know, I do a lot of reviews on Amazon because I decided. Years ago, I decided before Tainted Legacy was even published, I just decided if I read something that I really loved, I was going to leave a review on Amazon. Yeah. And and once Tainted Legacy came out, I decided if I read something I didn't love, I was not going to give it yeah. a negative review because yeah. I realized how important it is and mm -hmm. how meaningful it is to have the positive reviews Absolutely, yeah. and how devastating it can be <laughs> to have negative reviews. Um, I had one negative review, but it was, it was posted by a crazy woman who later took it down. And the reason why she posted it was she sent me a letter in the mail, a personal letter saying how much she loved the book and she wanted to be my pen pal, except that she was just a tad schizophrenic oh, by her own admission. Yeah. And so I was having trouble keeping up with her flurry of letters and she was upset and angered by that because I couldn't, I couldn't correspond with her and be the friend that she wanted. Okay. Yeah. And then she posted a negative review Yeah. and then she later took it down. So that was an interesting experience too. Um, but you're, I think that you're, you're absolutely right in that, in your sense of, um, you know, the fear never goes away. And this is an interesting thing I think about my subconscious. Mm -hmm. That voice never goes away, the one that you said this is this is probably just shit. Nobody's gonna read it and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So all through writing Tainted Legacy, that voice was just like clamoring so yeah. loud. <laughs> yeah. Just clamoring so loud. And then I had for a brief while when I was trying to market the book, I had an agent, a really fancy agent from Malibu, pick it up. Um, in case you're listening to this in some other part of the country, Malibu in Southern California is like the place everybody wants to live. Yeah, That's where all the it's gorgeous. Live. So no so, place to park there. It turns out, no, yeah, <laughs> unless you live there. Yeah, unless you have a house. <laughs> so, so really fancy agent from Malibu loved it, and and it's the kind of thing that you dream of where you come home from work, you know, la 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 la. You got the mail in one hand, you're talking to your dog. Come on, sweetie, let's. Oh, look, you know, somebody called us, and you hit the little button on the answer machine, which no one has anymore. <laughs> there are these machines. All right, I won't explain it, but you push the little button, and there's this voice saying, um, 
Hi, Kay. My name is Wendy Keller. I, I thank you for sending me blah, 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 your book proposal. I would love to represent you. So you oh, just keep man. playing it over and over and over and over. <laughs> yeah. Um, That's the dream for most writers. Yeah, it is. And as it turns out, she, could, she couldn't sell it. No. Nobody would buy it because they said, who's, who's going to read this book? Same, same thing. Yeah. She, she tried. Um, and a really great person, too, by the way. But that even having that and everything else, as much validation as you get, yeah. you still have that voice. And so, so then Tainted Legacy came out. And then uh, what do you know? Bunches and bunches of people have read it. And bunches and bunches of people keep buying it. And every time I go to Missouri, I sell out of the books I take with me. And, and all of that continues to happen. But then here I, I am yeah. working on the next book, The Dogs Who Saved Me, thinking... This is probably just crap, and no one cares about me or my dogs. No one's ever going to read this book. Yeah. And then there's that hush moment, the calm before the storm, where your book is released. You post something on Twitter and, and Facebook and say, my book just released, everybody. You can get it. And then nothing for like 48 hours. <laughs> and then suddenly somebody will go, oh, I just wanted to let you know I read your book and I liked it. And it's almost like you can exhale. Oh, yeah. Where you're just holding your breath that whole time. Yeah. But then you start working on the next book project and all of this, the same yeah. voices are there, the same fear. It's always going to be there. Where Writers are just filled with self-doubt yeah. and we can't escape. That's it. amazing. And, and I, I suspect a lot of readers especially the readers who you know you know like your fans or you know fans who enjoy my work they might be surprised to hear that that you know with say like for uh, again like the, the success that inside the outside has enjoyed was beyond anything that i could have expected and i'd like to i'd like to think i'd like to be able to say that you know from the whatever whatever you know time it's been as a, as a bestseller whatever awards it's won that those things were enough to to quiet the voices and now I can just work, but it didn't. Absolutely like, not. And you know the, the voices not not only are they there in a way, <clears throat> I think they've almost become more amplified because then you know I'm there might be a day where I'm writing, and it's like oh you know that stuff with inside the outside, that was fucking dumb luck. You couldn't do that again. Exactly. That and wasn't I, real. And you're gonna have the what if voices, right? Yeah. Well, what if this book's just not as good as yeah. Inside the Other? People are gonna yeah. be disappointed. Yeah. You oh, might as well stop and go. They're gonna be so games. disappointed. Yeah. Don't do this. Don't torture them with a new book. Yeah. Let, let, let them enjoy the one that they luckily enjoyed. Luckily for you. Those voices come from Satan. <laughs> I know what you're talking about, though, yeah. because with Tainted Legacy, it was then working on the dog book. It was me thinking. Well, everybody read that book because they were compelled by my great-grandmother's story, right? Because mm -hmm. they were all, oh, serial killer, let me see what that's about. Well, yeah. that's amazing. But now it's just like I had some dogs. They were wonderful. They saved my life. <laughs> who, who wants to read that? Turns out people who love dogs. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing. Again, if you're a writer and you're listening to this or you're aspiring, the, the, you know, probably the best thing that you can remember is that whatever you're writing, whatever it is, whether you're writing a memoir about dogs or fiction about cannibals or vampires or or some some strange idea where you think that nobody in the world's going to care just know whatever you're writing there's an audience for it yes and not only is there an audience for it they're waiting for it they're waiting for you to finish this book they don't know that they're waiting for it but when they find your book they're going to be so goddamn happy you wrote it there, i i guarantee you because yeah. as a reader as an avid reader myself yeah. I'm waiting for the next really good book. Yeah. And that's 
you you know you will recall you used to torture me because you would send me little sections of inside the outside <laughs> and go okay let me read this and I would read a chapter and go oh my God, it stopped <laughs> stop doing that stop doing that remember I told you oh, at some yeah. point in time I had read like three chapters I think you literally did yeah and I said don't send me anything else until you're finished with the whole thing and I can read the whole thing and I was like don't you remember when I was eighteen and and we made that silent contract that you maybe don't remember but you said it with your eyes that. You're going to encourage me and that every time I need <laughs> encouragement, you'd be the one to read it. You didn't say it, but that was our unspoken contract that for the rest of my life, you'd be the one that validated <laughs> everything that I did to keep me going forward. And I will. And every time you get another accolade, you should know. I always try to post it so that I say, I taught him everything he knows. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's probably, you know. In, in fact, you say that, and and and, and I'll vouch for anybody who anybody comes. If 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 somebody should come up to me, and is like, listen, there's this S.K. Murphy. I don't know if you actually know her. <laughs> she's she's out she's out in the world talking shit that she taught you. And I'll stop him and say, every whatever she's saying, I don't know what she said. It's true, whatever it is. I don't even have to hear what she told you. It's true. That's good. You should go with that. <laughs> in fact, from there you can just make stuff up, and I'll just I'll just. I'll stamp put my stamp on it. Absolutely, it's true. She did buy me my first typewriter. <laughs> yes, she did. Typewriter. Yeah. Oh, goodness. She so actually... that's a machine. Where you... <laughs> you push the buttons. Again, it's, it's buttons. Anyway. Well, I think, I think I've kept you long enough. Yeah, I think I have to go see a man about a dog. That... Literally. <laughs> you actually are. You are not... You don't just walk the walk. You're literally going to go from this podcast and you're going to a... Straight to the Rancho Cucamonga Animal Shelter to to spend some quality time, I hope, with a dog. Yeah. No, you're, you may, just, just spending time with, with, with the dogs and shelters because you are an angel. One more reason why you're awesome. Well, definitely a dog lover. And, and I don't know if we mentioned it, but let's mention it one more time because this is where my heart is. The dogs who saved me, all 100% of what I make from that book goes to Animal Rescue. 100% of what I make. Which is beautiful. And again, just, just, you know, like next time somebody writes a book or puts out a movie and there's a disclaimer that says a portion of... Yeah, a the, portion. A, a portion of... What's that? You know, the money, a portion of, the, a portion of these profits will go toward this or that. I mean, you know, fine, good on them. I've given none of my money to, char- to charity <laughs> for my books. But still, you know, good. What Kay Murphy is saying is that 100%, every penny that she makes on the dogs who save me, she's, you know, donating to, to animal shelters and animal animal causes. Is it one particular or do you, or do you try to spread the wealth? I, I'm trying to spread the wealth. So if I do an event um, in the fall, I do an event with Living Free um, Animal Sanctuary in Idlewild. And because I do the event with them, I sell books there. And so I, it goes quarterly. So for that quarter, yeah. everything I earn on the book goes to that particular shelter. And there are other rescues that um, I've rescued through Hope Rescue and Upland. So I've donated to them. Um, awesome. Some of the quarters have gone to them too. So yeah, it, it, it changes. But that, that's the whole idea of the book. I wanted it to um, honor my dogs. And I'm sure it was my dog's compelling me yeah. and saying you know the best way you could honor us is that t- take care of other rescue dogs and shelter dogs and yeah so that's awesome goes there yeah. yeah you're awesome yeah oh, well <laughs> thank you you're awesomer all right i'll take that just because uh you're awesome so if you said it it must be true you are and i really appreciate this opportunity not just to sit and talk about my books but to talk about writing because 
I really, really want to encourage all writers out there. Yeah. Don't listen to anybody who's negative. Absolutely. Listen to them for 10 seconds and then smile and go, thank you for sharing your point of view and then walk away and and keep on doing what you love and writing to your passion. Yeah. And and if and when you're lucky to find the SK Murphy in your life, hold on to her with two hands and don't ever let her go. That's so sweet. (laughs) It's true. I love you, Martin. I love you, Kay. Well, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation every bit as much as I enjoyed having it. Uh, S.K. Murphy is one of my dearest friends in the whole wide world, and I can't tell you how, how much it meant to me to sit down with her and talk about her books and talk about writing and, frankly, just hanging out, because any time I get to hang out with Kay, my day is just a little bit better. So in the meantime, please don't forget to visit the website, martinlestrapshow.com. Uh, and please don't forget to do any Amazon shopping you have to do through the website. Uh, as any shopping you do, Amazon kicks back a small percentage, and that money helps us finance the production of this show. Also, don't forget if you want to contact me, you can hit me up on Twitter. My handle is at martinlestraps. And you can also visit my author website at martinlestraps.com. Until next week, I'll see you on the other side.